And so while you're turning to this in your Bibles, let me just give you a quick rundown of where we are in redemptive history. Ezekiel is written in the background of the Israelite exile. As are a few of our prophetic works in the Old Testament, an exile is such a small word to describe such a large and horrendous trauma. Israel continuously defiled the temple. They worshipped other gods. They profaned themselves wantonly to other nations. And so God opened up a can of whooping upon them. He poured out his wrath on them. And Israel deserved it. All of us here are more than likely not able to fully understand this level of national trauma. That doesn't mean we don't experience terrifying events in our lives. Many of us, regardless of status, can experience traumatic events. You here listening to me may be able to relate to difficult, life-changing and depressing events in your life. Much like the Israelites in Ezekiel, who are sometimes called the diaspora, you may feel like God has abandoned you, like God has left you behind. Perhaps you think that God is punishing you for your sins, for your own idolatry, punishing you for your lack of prayer, your lack of devotion. I haven't been studying the Bible enough. That's why God is doing this to me. We are logical beings. We can certainly read in Ezekiel how God is punishing the Israelite nation. He's doing this for their inability to follow God's law. Clearly, it seems, if we do not do right in God's eyes, we deserve to be punished. We deserve nothing less than exile. Let's read what God's message is for us today. This is Ezekiel Verses 25 through 28. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. We see a problem in our logic. Clearly, the Israelites, the diaspora, deserve to be struck down by God. We can probably relate at times to this. Who are we that we deserve anything other than God's wrath? As a nation... And if we allow some honesty as individuals, we worship things like money before we worship God. We worship sex before God. We worship our jobs before God. And I'm going to say it, we worship football before God. Ask yourself, how many hours do you spend in front of your electronics before you're spending time in the Word of God? We deserve to be in exile. But God's message to us today says something quite different. His message today says that you are not in exile. 
You are not exiled because God has renewed you. You are not exiled because God has cleansed you. You are not exiled because God has enabled you. Let's pray together to see this message in our word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great day that we have been given to glorify you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the Holy Spirit that enables us. Lord, your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. Help us to easily see guidance from your word this morning. Amen. If you're like me, when you experience something good and life seems to be going along smoothly, you wonder when the next shoe is going to drop. Spam in my email has been telling me of a recession and economic collapse since I've had email. There's no shortage of bad news floating around out there, and sometimes that bad news is directed straight at us, as if we have a target on our backs. And this gives birth to such profound statements as, when it rains, it pours. Our society does not help us when it comes to figuring out how to deal with calamity. It doesn't help that when we turn to the world to try to reason things out for our ill fortune, they say, do it yourself. That's the name of the game. You get what you earn. This even seeps into some American Christian theology. If we are sick, it's because we didn't pray enough. If we are broke, it's because we didn't give enough. The list goes on. We may ask, why do bad things happen? Why does God permit things like crime? Why does God allow North Korea, the war in the Ukraine? Why does God give cancer? There are some deeply personal events that can truly feel like we are being punished by God. But still you are not in exile because God has renewed you. In verse 26, God says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God is going to do something for Israel that they would never be able to do for themselves. A heart of stone implies a heart that is dead, one that is incapable of sustaining life of any sort. As a diaspora are standing in exile, experiencing God's wrath for their, their idolatry, God gives this reminder of his covenant that he made with them. God has always remembered his covenants that he makes with his people. And so here we have something that God is going to do for Israel that they do not deserve. Something that they have clearly not earned at all. Israel, rebellious Israel, stubborn Israel have been doing things that are idolatrous. They have defiled the temple. They have worshipped other gods. Their use of the temple, the adherence to the rules with which to use the temple has become rote. Israel is dead in their sins and trespasses. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says the same thing of all of us. You are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead, incapable of life, possessing a heart of stone. Think about what a heart of stone means. Stones are hard. They're unmalleable inflexible 
rigid. You could describe a stone as stubborn, unwilling to conform to anything. Throw a rock into the water, the water moves around the rock. Push a rock into the sand on the beach, the sand moves out of the way of the rock. The rock doesn't bend, it doesn't change. As God described his heart of stones, he is describing something that is incapable of being anything other than what it wants to be. Cold, hard, stubborn, unwilling to be moved or shaped by anything outside of itself. A rock is selfish. This is Israel. This is all of us. Without God, without Jesus... But God does something for Israel. God does something for us. Something that is extremely important and necessary. God reaches in and performs a spiritual transplant. He takes out our stubborn, selfish, rigid heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is life-giving. It is yielding, feeling. A heart of flesh pumps life-giving blood not only to itself, but also to the rest of the body. Here in this verse, God is spiritually regenerating Israel, giving them new life, a heart that feels, that loves, that yearns for something more than just the next beats. To the culture of the Israelites, as well as to our culture, the heart is often thought of as the center of the self, the emotions, Going from a rigid and inflexible heart of stone to one of flesh means that they and us are now ready to receive the gift of faith to witness the beauty of God, to hear something that is external, the Word of God, and then to see their despair in sin. And there's nothing that we can do for ourselves at all. This can be hard to understand for those who are not in Christ, for those who have not received this gift of regeneration that leads to faith. People who have a heart of stone, this metaphorical heart of stone, they're still capable of loving some people. They're still capable of getting their feelings crushed. They're capable of happiness and sadness. But they just don't get it. Those of us who do work hard... And should work hard to help them understand, but it is difficult. When I was in middle school, I took a music class and we were learning about the piano. The teacher had shown me the music, the notes. She had given me the information I knew about bass and treble clefs. I knew about timing. I would try to play the music. I would get the notes sort of right. But there was nothing that I was playing that was enjoyable at all. But then, for some strange reason, I got it. I played all the notes in the correct sequence to the correct timing. The rhythm tapped out and the music was being played. My teacher looked at me and said, yeah, now you got it. Now you have the beat. Likewise, our regeneration is not explained by any set of steps. Do this and you will get that. No, it requires an action of God, something outside of you just to help you get it. The timing of which can happen at any point in your life, 
It's up to God. If it was just us, we would continue to bang on the keyboard, occasionally hitting the right notes, but never getting the gist of the music. Once we get it, we have a different perspective. We have a different understanding and can see where we're making mistakes. Likewise, the gift of regeneration, this gift of a new heart of flesh, can let us see not only the offering of faith in God, but also the sin in our lives, the sin that has been keeping us, maybe still is, in turmoil. But now with our new heart, we can turn from this sin, seeing it for the prison that it is, and respond to the beauty of salvation. And so we get to our second point. We are not in exile because God cleanses us. We are not in exile because God has cleansed us fully and completely in Jesus Christ. Of course, our text is prior to Calvary. The people of Israel do not know who Christ is, even though he has and is been at work in their lives. The people of Israel are still in a covenant with God. It's the covenant of grace. The difference between then and now is that the covenant then was administered by the law, the system of sacrifices in the temple to atone for their sin, and the prophets that are raised up by God to, to deliver his word. Ezekiel 36:25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Right away, our minds can drift to the sacrament of baptism, the image of the baby having water sprinkled on him or her in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That can spring to our minds. The outward element in the sacrament is water, and the sacrament represents an engrafting into Christ, a regeneration and a cleansing. What's important to note is that this is not an action of works. It's not on the part of the parents or on the part of the minister that brings this cleansing this regeneration it is an outward sign of the covenant of grace it is a representation of the removal of sins the acceptance into the visible church but it is god who is a principal actor in our regeneration and cleansing the cleansing is often understood as this washing of our sin for many of us for many of the israelites this is how we might understand this message as washing is to make us clean, but there's a chance that we're not giving this as much thought as we should. The law of Moses held many practices regarding cleansing. There were many things that would make one unclean and therefore unworthy of approaching the tabernacle or the temple. There were animals that were considered unclean, for example, pigs. Likewise, touching a dead body would make you unclean, leprous skin lesions, the national or the natural relations between a married man and woman. There are many things that would make you unclean and not worthy to approach the seat of God. The ritual for purity included the washing with water. However, for them and for us, there is so much more to this meaning of cleansing. The sprinkling of water mentioned in the text probably brings to the mind of the diaspora the sprinkling of blood as a sacrifice on the altar. So when the Hebrews heard this from Ezekiel, when they hear that God will cleanse them with the sprinkling of water, their understanding provides a different glimpse to our text, a deeper meaning for us to understand. 
Leviticus 10.10 teaches that you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. This is a different perspective to simply being clean. The juxtaposition of what is holy with what is clean is made here. If you recall this verse, immediately prior in Leviticus is where the sons of Aaron were consumed by fire from God for, for offering unauthorized incense before the Lord. The holiness of God is unfathomable. So much so that the misstep of Aaron's sons and their approach to worship was an abomination to the Lord. The command given to Aaron in Leviticus 10.10 showcases the backdrop of reality. This vast chasm between the holiness of God and the stink of what we think is being clean. There is simply no comparison. So when the diaspora hear these words given to them, when they look around and realize all that they have done, surely they must have wept, as should we. For the sin that we commit earns us God's wrath just as much. We deserve the exile just as much. And yet, God makes a way for us to be reconciled back to Him. So imagine how this sounds to the diaspora. The temple is gone. The city of Jerusalem is burned. The way in which the people would submit offerings for their sins, it just didn't exist anymore. And yet Ezekiel tells them that God, the one who is holy beyond measure, has nothing to do with their sins, takes this responsibility upon himself to cleanse and purify them and us to make us holy. The diaspora didn't exactly grasp the depth that God would go to in taking on this responsibility, this cleansing. If we look just outside our verses, we see Ezekiel explaining to them that God is not doing this for their sake, but for the sake of God's holy name. This is in verse 22. In verse 31, Ezekiel tells them that after God has restored them, they will remember all of their evil ways and that they will loathe themselves. God tells Ezekiel that the house of Israel will be ashamed and confounded in their ways. God does not cleanse us because we demand to be cleaned. We cannot make the mess and then tell God to clean it up. Make no mistake, God does cleanse us. He does what we cannot do. As Paul says in Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is not responsive to us. We are responsive to Him. God is holy, we are not. Unless God acts and makes us so. God is not a megalomaniac. He's not egocentric. But he is the center of everything and we are not. Our dependence is on God, not the other way around. Our sin should bring us shame. Our sin should convict us and move us to seek out forgiveness. And the wonder and beauty of the depth to which God has cleansed us. What the diaspora couldn't see just yet. What we see as the cross of Calvary. 
And while we may still have to pay a price in this world for our sin, after all, you cannot steal and expect no jail time. You cannot commit adultery and expect your home life to be wonderful. But your sins are forgiven in Christ. Old Testament prophecy had this continual meaning, this unfolding of revelation. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28 is foretelling of so much. To the diaspora, the meaning unfolds in a way that shows a return to their lands and the rebuilding of the temple. For us, we see the redemption in the life and death of Jesus Christ, who perfectly pays the price for all of our sins. If one was being skeptical, those living in exile might wonder just how in the world are they going to avoid being crushed by God's wrath in the future? The law has been around for a long time. The temple was available. It's not anymore. So even if with their new heart of flesh, they wanted to repent of their sins and offer atonement, how do they do that? The whole system of worship has broken down for them. How can they do enough to please God? How can I do enough to please God? Here I am with his new heart. Here I am all cleaned up. What can I do to keep God happy with me? This is a question that often creeps his head up and can lead us down a path of despair because there's nothing that you can do good enough that's going to please God. This is not new. It's not new information for them and it's certainly not new information for us. For those exiled, they may recall how Hannah the mother of Samuel, after bringing her child to Eli to be lent to the Lord, prayed this. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Likewise, Paul in Romans 3, quoting from Psalm 14 and 53, says, None is righteous, no, not one. In our text... God says this, and this is verses 27 and 28. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God renews, God cleanses, and God enables. The restoration for the people of Israel... This promise is fulfilled both in the short term. The nation does return to Jerusalem. The, the temple is rebuilt. But more significantly, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the long term. Our very ability to believe in Jesus is a direct result, a direct action of the Holy Spirit who enables our hearts to receive the gift of faith. Why we get it, why we understand the music is a gift from God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 15, verses 4 through 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God enables us. How else can you explain people leaving well-paying jobs to come into the service of the Lord? 
How else do you explain missionaries dropping their lives of comfort and prestige to serve in impoverished and dangerous countries the world over? How else do you explain the work of people like Pastor Sergei in the Ukraine? Pastor Sergei led a church in Kharkiv of 117 people. Kharkiv is 15 miles from the Russian border. When the Russian army invaded, his church scattered. Sergei put his wife and kids into a car in the midst of bombs and missile strikes, and they fled west. Still in the Ukraine, Sergei reestablished worship and coordinates getting supplies that are donated by the greater church, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine to those who are directly in need. He preaches the gospel and he proclaims the glory of God in a war-torn country. What enables the men and women of the church of Ukraine? What enables us, your church, your denomination, to give money and supplies to help those who are like Sergei accomplish these things? God enables us through his spirit. The world holds a great many challenges for us. At times it can feel like we are being overwhelmed and attacked. Sin is a real thing with real consequences. It feels like a battle that we are constantly striving to win. It's been a battle that has been raging since Adam's transgression. It certainly does not help that the society that we live in enjoys embracing sin. Acceptance of truths that are far from biblical in a pursuit of just about anything other than Christ. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, is what we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Ladies and gentlemen, you should take confidence and hope in the fact that you are in Christ. You are not in exile. Just as the diaspora is promised in Ezekiel to be returned to their land that is given to them by God, so too are we who are made alive in Christ, living in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So when the times are hard, it seems like everything in life is caving in upon you. When you feel your life purpose has been accomplished, you have nothing else to do, but left out, put out to pasture when you're alone, when you're scared. When you're unsure, know that you are not in exile. Rather, you are on mission. God renews us, cleanses us, enables us, and then he sends us. We, those who are in Christ, have one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot on the ground here, proclaiming his word. We are here to give glory to God, to bear witness to the kingdom of God that is here right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God was carried to the diaspora through the prophets. For us, the Word of God is written in our Bibles and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. 
There are many that will not hear these words at all. There are many who will not listen to us proclaiming Christ. In fact, there are many that will take great offense at the words of Christ. We can do and should take great confidence, nonetheless, in what God has done for us, for the renewal of our hearts, the cleansing of our sins, the enablement of God's Spirit. And if we are taking great confidence in this good news proclaimed to us, we should also take great confidence in the work God will do in others. Ezekiel 37 shows that upon hearing the word of the Lord, those who are dead, so dead that their corpses are dried up bones, have new life breathed into them. The same spirit that enables us, that sends us to proclaim God's word, brings with it the sound of rattling bones, the sound of bones coming together, being knitted with sinew, muscle, and flesh, and then with the breath of God There stands the children of God, our brothers and sisters. We are on mission because God renews us, cleanses us, and enables us. He replaces our inability to see the plight of others. He replaces that which is selfish and cold with a heart that feels, that cares, that loves. We get the rhythm of the music. But we also understand how difficult and frustrating it was when we were pounding at the keys. Have the compassion to understand their frustration. To warmly and lovingly and confidently offer the truth and good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word offered in kindness. Now we ask that you help us to remember what you have taught, that we are ambassadors of the covenant of grace given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.